Welcome to episode 33 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I'm going to talk cyber warfare with fellow FBI Supervisory Special Agent Donna Peterson. Tell your friends about this podcast. They're going to You are going to gain two to three IQ points just by listening to this discussion. Before I get there, a couple news articles from the week. It's been a busy week from a cybersecurity perspective, but the one I want to start with here has to do with the Justice Department and FBI working together to get a court authorization to essentially do hacking into private companies to remove malware that had been placed there by bad guys. So reading briefly here from the uh, part of the press release from the Department of Justice, Basically says, through January and February 2021, certain hacking groups exploited zero-day vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange server software to access email accounts and place web shells for continued access. Other hacking groups followed suit starting in early March after the vulnerability and patch were publicized. Although many infected system owners successfully removed the web shells from thousands of computers, others appeared unable to do so, and hundreds of such web shells persisted unmitigated. Today's operation removed one early hacking group's remaining web shells, which could have been used to maintain and escalate persistent unauthorized access to U.S. networks. The FBI conducted the removal by issuing a command through the web shell to the server, which was designed to cause the server to delete only the web shell. This is unrelated to Microsoft's April 13th announcement. So basically what they're saying is that the FBI got a court order to go into private companies' networks and remove malware. Now, that's a good reason to do that. I'm not blaming the FBI for, 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 for doing that. The issue I have with this, and it's kind of, I'll be honest with you, I haven't really completely thought through where I stand on this, and you can find a discussion about this on my LinkedIn profile where I posted this, but this seems to create a somewhat slippery slope in the sense that you are, the government could have very easily gone to the companies that they essentially hacked into and said, run this code on your network to remove this web shell from your system. That could have been done. I'm sure there was a rationale for why they did it the way that they did it. And ideally there was no damage, additional damage done to any of the networks that they penetrated, but therein lies the other problem is that this could create it. Let's say they went in and did something wrong and took down the entire network. Now, granted, they probably, I don't know the basis of the background to any of this or how they did it, uh, and it seems to be successful after this point. It'll be interesting to see for the next week how this is portrayed and any ancillary effects that come from that. But an interesting, this is an interesting evolution of the methodology by which the government is taking to cybersecurity. This could be a bad thing. Uh, privacy experts will probably not think that's a good thing. I'm not exactly sure where I stand on this. There's a quote here from the acting FBI cyber assistant director that says, this operation is an example of the FBI's commitment to combating cyber threats through our enduring federal and private sector partnerships. Uh, Now, here's the problem. Is it a partnership if you do it unilaterally? So that's that's the question that I want to see answered over the course of the next couple of weeks is where do the companies that had this happen to them, where do they where do they land on this particular activity? That'll be interesting to watch as we go forward. Second article uh, I saw today talks about employee cybersecurity skills. So a poll was re- or a survey was recently done of employee employers. Uh, through cybersecurity, uh, through who did this exactly? I'm sorry, uh, 
Talent LMS on behalf of the Kenna Security, wanted to see and check the cybersecurity habits of 1,200 workers across multiple different entities. And so they gave them a cybersecurity quiz, and 61% of them failed basic cybersecurity knowledge. So that is not good, meaning that a basic quiz on cybersecurity, after they had had training on cybersecurity, they still failed this particular cyber quiz. Now, granted, the way that cybersecurity training is done is generally fairly antiseptic. Um, it's a lot of times a um, uh, check the box kind of thing. I recently was on a podcast called The Rap by a Birmingham uh, company called Warren Averant is the company that runs the rap podcast. It was a good discussion. We kind of talked about this, about you kind of have to change how you do education. You have to make it more than just a, hey, read these 20 PowerPoint slides on cybersecurity so we can check a box that you did it and we're good to go. So the problem is, I think, for cybersecurity education is there needs to be somewhat of a paradigm shift wherein you bring in actual educators to create the cybersecurity curriculum that is used to train employees has to be more than just, Hey, read this PowerPoint slide and and we'll hope for the best from there. It needs to be someone engaging, meaningful and useful to the employees. In other words, make it important to them to help them stay safe personally from a cybersecurity perspective because cybersecurity is not just what you should think about when you're at work. You need to think about it when you're at home as well. If you have kids, you have elderly parents, there are threats that target them. So staying on top of the cybersecurity threat and having awareness, listening to podcasts like this, help you stay in that particular frame of mind and understanding what's going on out there. How bad is it and how do we deal with it? So that would be my suggestion is, you know, blend someone with an education degree and a cybersecurity degree, have them create your cybersecurity training and go from there. Uh, I, ironically, I have both of those degrees, so that might be a somewhat self-serving uh, statement there. Eh, who am I kidding? It is a self-serving statement, but I think that's kind of where cybersecurity training really needs to go down the road. The last thing, and this will lead us into my discussion with Donna Peterson, is has to do with cyber war. And NATO, this is an article from Sky News, uh, basically says NATO prepares for the world's largest cyber war game with a focus on the gray zone. So this is from Alexander Martin reporting. Uh, and so the lock shield exercise will place as much focus on gray zone activities as it will on the technical aspects of cyber defense. Now, if you don't know what the gray zone is, Don and I are going to talk about that in our interview coming up. So you'll get a little preview or you get a little definition of the gray zone coming up. But essentially from the article, military cybersecurity specialists are preparing for the largest cyber war game in the world, which kicks off tomorrow, which was today actually, as the fictional NATO member state of Berylia comes under attack. The real-time NATO exercise will include defenders practicing the protection of critical civilian and military infrastructure, including water treatment facilities and energy plants. Amid the increasing risk of real international conflict, the exercise will also include legal teams who will need to figure out if and when a particular action is acceptable under international law, as well as strategic communication experts to handle disinformation. And this really brings about the big problem when it comes to cybersecurity is what are your policies and procedures? What are the rules that you are following to engage in this kind of activity? Uh, fortunately, uh, Donna will discuss a lot of that coming up. She's very well-versed. And like I said earlier, you will gain IQ points just by listening to her speak. So we're looking forward to that. So this, this, this getting back to this particular war game situation, this is probably something that honestly needs to be done more frequently because cyber war is coming, whether actually it's here already. 
but it's going to become a more persistent state in our lives. So having the, uh, a way to understand it, to test it for countries to practice against it will go a great way to helping build the defense that you need to protect yourself uh, when these actions come forth. So with that, let's get to the interview. So let me welcome to the podcast, Donna Peterson. Uh, Donna is making a repeat appearance on the podcast. Donna is a retired supervisory special agent and probably the brightest person I ever worked with in the FBI. Donna, thanks for coming back on. Thanks, Darren. No, no pressure. <laughs> well, now in your in your retired life, now that you are 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 doing walkabouts all over the country, it's hard to track hard to track you down to find time to get you back on. All right, fair fair, fair point. I am taking advantage of this uh, right time off for the first time in my life. Right, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with that. I I must say, but I when I started thinking about doing a podcast on cyber war because of some of the news articles that had come out recently, you were the first person I thought about talking about simply because you've been in many different roles, seen this from many different areas. And I, I figured we could have a pretty good discussion on all things cyber war oriented because really there is not a whole lot of definition as to what cyber war is. You know, there's been some recent headlines where there was an attack on a, on a treatment plant, a water treatment plant in Oldsmar, Florida. Obviously the solar winds attack is attributed to the Russians and I'm sure the Chinese are in there a little bit as well. There's all the Chinese attacks going back to Titan rain in 2003 um, and most recently, the Israelis targeted the Natanz Iran, uh, the Natanz nuclear facility in Iran, and did something there badly. So let's start off first with what is your definition of cyber warfare? Okay. <laughs> um, so you know, you know, I, I love this question, Darren. Of course, because I, because I'm a policy nerd, right? Mm-hmm. And and words matter, definitions matter, right? They matter to international treaties. They matter. They matter in the legal realm. So let's talk about this. So when we talk about cyber warfare, I mean, to me, the Oldsmar treatment plan is a great place to start, right? Because it illuminates some of the policy issues that I think we'll talk about more in depth later in the podcast. So, so far, I've seen no attribution for the hack other than someone on the internet accessed uh, TeamViewer and was almost able to increase the amount of sodium hydroxide in the city's water supply to 100 times higher than normal. So, so like I said, this is where policy really matters. And, you know, let's start with an actual scenario. So in this case, if the hacker was a 15-year-old U.S. citizen living in the U.S., then as you know, like DOJ has a very hard time prosecuting juveniles. And this will probably be a lengthy discussion between DOJ and some state officials as to how to handle um, the attacker in this type of attack. Um, and chances are any penalty would be non-existent to mild. So, however, if you contrast that to what could potentially happen if this had been a nation state actor, such as a China um, People's Liberation Army or Russian GRU, right, military intelligence member, an action like this, like compromising another nation's critical infrastructure in an attempt to cause harm in the physical world, could be viewed as a violation of the UN Charter prohibiting use of force against its members. And it certainly triggers the, Pen- the Pentagon's assertion of equivalence found in its 2011 cyber strategy which says that an attack um, on, our, on our systems, or like, a, like a digital attack on our systems that does as much damage as a traditional attack could actually prompt a military response, right? And, and in this assertion, the Pentagon had specifically called out attacks on critical infrastructure, right? Which obviously water and, and water treatment plants are. So I'm fascinated by the notion that even given the same fact pattern here, depending on who conducted this attack, it could result in zero penalties, or U.S. military armed retaliation against another nation state, right? It's an excellent initial example of why the topic of cyber warfare is so interesting. 
Right. When I got my master's, yeah, when I got my master's degree, we had, we had a whole uh, topic on cyber war and defining what cyber warfare is. And I don't think we ever came up with one because, you know, so let's take Oldsmar as an example. Let's say, you know, and and in that particular attack, no one was injured. No one was hurt. I mean, there's certainly the potential, but then does that make it a difference? If, if does someone have to die for it to be, for it to, to trigger, I mean, I I know what, based on what you said, it doesn't need that, but where do you think countries are going to come down on that? Let's take, let's go to Iran right now. I'm pretty sure well, they're pretty pissed that their their <laughs> nuclear power plant got taken down by likely a insider and a cyber attack. But what are they <laughs> going to do about it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's weird too. That that's another thing here where attribution hasn't quite been set, right? Sure. When I think I think and it was just it was just this past weekend, right? On mm-hmm. Saturday, Iran had a had a public ceremony, sort of you know inaugurating its new its new centrifuge. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then and and then on on Sunday, it what looks like a hybrid cyber physical attack sort of blew up the power supply to those centrifuges, mm-hmm. right? Essentially, essentially rendering them useless for the next few months. And I guess here's the thing, right? There's, there's been a lot of, a lot of chatter in the Israeli press about the fact that this was a Mossad driven attack and, you know, Israel has not denied it. Right. right. But we still, but we still don't know quite what happens, but you bring up, you bring up an interesting point here too. And there's something else that we'll talk about. I think a little later in the podcast too, is the, the type of attack, if it's, if it's ambiguous or if it's, you know, system compromise, theft of data, and it could, and it could run the range from criminal to espionage to say, preparing the battle space, right. Which is a, which is a, a DOD concept here, then you know, if, if an attack can be any of those things, then the response to the attack and the, and, the, and the idea of how much of a threat that attack is lies solely with the victim. Right. Right, which is mm-hmm. not really <laughs> how, how international law was supposed to go. Right, but, sure, sure. Right, but, that's, but that's where we are in, in cyber attacks because they can, they can be so ambiguous. Right, and it's, it's really easy to deny it. I mean, China's been denying they've done anything yeah. for years. I mean, they, they, yeah, absolutely. Xi, Jinping, absolutely. Xi Jinping met with hey, Obama and said, oh, I promise we're done. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yes. That, 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 that mm-hmm. is true. So do you think the USIC is, so, so let, let's talk about the USIC. Where, where do you think the USIC comes down on this? Are they under the assumption we're engaged in the cyber war? Are they trying to gather more intelligence to prove it? I mean, there's plenty of news articles lately that indicate that, you know, no one's going to declare yeah. a cyber war per se, but how close are we? Do you think the USIC is looking at this and saying, okay, let's, let's figure out what our war, war plans are for this space. Well, well, again, right. Um, we talk about Darren, like words matter, language matters and policy matters. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, like, absolutely. I think, I think everyone in the intelligence community understands that we're in a state of continual and continually expanding and escalating cyber conflict, yep. right? All of our critical infrastructure, military and defense industrial base, our research and development, our governments, our financial markets and money, our communications, all of these things sit within our digital infrastructure. So it makes sense, right, that nation states have pivoted to this domain, right? The military calls it the fifth domain to achieve their political, economic and military goals. But one of the things I will say, right, if if the if the U.S. intelligence community is going to come out and say that we are in continual low-grade cyber war or cyber warfare, it, it makes absolutely no difference. That sits squarely in the realm of political rhetoric right. because there, there are no authorities triggered in the USIC by calling something war sure. or yeah. warfare, if that makes sense. Right, and it's probably a lot of it right. is a lot of misrepresentation by the media and how they present it because there is no – 
like we said, we, there's really no strand standard definition for it. So, but if, but if some, if you, well, if you put a headline with the word cyber war in it, people are going to read that article. Or click <laughs> well, that yes, link. yes. But if you, but I mean, again, if you want to get, if you want to get nerdy here, and I'm a policy nerd, so I will, right there, there is actual, there's, there's actually the talent manual. Right. It's the Talon Manual on the International Law Applicable to Cyber Warfare. Yes. Right. And it's probably the most comprehensive analysis on how existing international law applies to cyberspace. But even that, right, like the, the first Talon Manual came out in April of, I think, 2013. And then, you know, they, they had to come out with Talon Manual 2.0 in <laughs> February of seven, 2017. Um because of the, the first the first manual essentially did um what DOD has done over the years and said right? The focus was the most disruptive and destructive cyber operations, right? The mm -hmm. really bad ones that could qualify as armed attacks and therefore allowing states to respond in self-defense, right? Which is, which, which is where the international world is a lot more comfortable, right? Because these are, these are well-worn well and, and accepted conditions for war and warfare, right? Yep. So, so right. but, well, I was going to say, but even, you know, five short years later, Talon 2.2 had to examine the international legal framework that applies to malevolent cyber operations that do not rise to the level of armed attacks, right? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody the world over um, is slowly realizing that that's, we, we, there's not a direct one-to-one, -to, -one, to your point, right? Sure. There, there's, no, there's no easy way to equate the cyber operations that we're seeing now with our traditional concepts and, concepts and legal constructs surrounding actual war and warfare. That's great. That's a great point. My question, the follow up to that is, do you have the hard copy version of the Talon Manual or the soft copy version? Which one do you have? Uh, <laughs> are, are you kidding? Tal Talon Manual 3.0 is coming out and I'm very excited for that. Have they asked you to edit it? But, I'm no, sure they be, should, you should volunteer it'll, to edit it'll, it. It'll, it'll be five years from now. So they're, they're, they're actually start, they're starting the five year revision this year. Oh, okay. So you spent time, let's, let's move to the so, politicians. So last week I had a conversation with a guy talking about politicians and policies and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I'm not going to get deep into, you know, where, you know, the left or right stands on this. I don't think that's really that important. Um, but you yeah. spent time on, on Capitol Hill. From a general perspective, do the policymakers understand this threat and the evolution of where we're going with this? Because obviously, if you go back to 2008, when Russia invaded yeah. South Ossetia, they were doing they were doing cyber attacks. then. there was a there was a cyber warfare aspect to that. So it's certainly been proven that it, it's effective. Do you think the policymakers, is this sure. on their radar or is this not something they, they generally are concerned with because it's just not real to them. So, so I, I will tell you, unless, you know, un, unless you read certain things in government and defense circles, I think our evolution on, on thinking of cyber operations has completely, you know, has, has completely been lost in the, in the general public press. Right. So I will say, so, so for my time on the Hill, right. In 2017 and 2018, I was the FBI detailee to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Right. And part of that, um, as as a detailed staffer, I was in a cybersecurity working group. Right. And it was our committee and it was the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Right. It was staffer levels. And, and you know, especially I will say the late Senator John McCain's staff was very, very, very focused on this issue. Right. They, they were sort of leading this informal working group that we were in. So so I will tell you this. Right. The policymakers involved in national security and defense uh, issues. Absolutely understand. There is a very sophisticated understanding of this threat, right? By the by, the senators on SISI and SASC. So, and, and I will say too. So, si since I was there from 2018 to now, um, if you look, there's been some really, really interesting um, 
policy policy evolutions, things that have happened out of Congress, like the fiscal year 2019 National Defense Authorization Act established the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which you might have heard of, to develop a consensus on a strategic approach to defending the U.S. in cyberspace against cyber attacks of significant consequence, right, which is a pretty broad definition. Sure. Um, they, they published their report, their first report in March of 2020. And while I think like a lot of the recommendations are very pie in the sky, mm -hmm. <laughs> I look at the recommendations of this report, like these are never going to happen. Um, the report does show a good grasp of the many, many mundane issues, right, that contribute to our overall insecure national cyber posture, right? Like our weak supply chain security, well, hello, solar winds, right? <laughs> yeah, our fed right, our exactly. federal workforce shortcomings, <laughs> right? Yep. I mean, you know. We can we can barely keep cyber agents right at the bureau, um, much less you know other agencies can can barely keep you know properly trained and credentialed IT staff right and our lack of um, it, it even in the nation our lack of corporate cybersecurity accountability right so there's sure. there's a good grasp of this on the sort of civilian side, but even more importantly. Um, the language in the fiscal year 2019 NDAA represents like a sea change in congressional willingness to take the gloves off and start using our military assets um, against the nation state attacks that we've been enduring, specifically from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, right? It calls out those four countries specifically, right? So, so the conference report that comes with the NDAA like makes it very clear that Congress is specifically allowing DOD to use cyber capabilities to respond to malicious cyber activities outside of traditional military frameworks, right? Like section 1642 actually says, listen to this, this is fascinating, <laughs> that DOD has the authority to take appropriate and proportional action in foreign cyberspace to disrupt, defeat, and deter in response to an active, systematic, and ongoing campaign of attacks against the government or people of the United States in cyberspace, including attempting to influence American elections and democratic political processes, right? So long as the attackers in question are China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea, right? Mm -hmm. And section 1642 also says that these operations now count as traditional military activities, which cleans up a lot of domestic legal questions of DOD having to adhere to Title 50 requirements um, regarding covert action. But the, the thing I want to point out here that, that is so interesting to me, so when it says appropriate and proportional action, those are concepts of just ad bellum, right? The conditions of war that are recognized by the international community. Right. So we are taking those, but we're applying them to conflicts that fall well below the internationally recognized thresholds of war and armed conflict. Right. We have blown right past yep. any sort of criminal and counterintelligence concepts here and are choosing to define these attacks using the internationally recognized language of warfare. See, that is I mean, why I wanted to have you huge. on for this topic, because I knew you would do the research, the research I am too lazy to do. So I appreciate that, that research. That is that is a that's a fantastic point that I was not obviously fully versed on. And it's a, it's, it's good to know, at least that the, the DOD yeah. has some capability to go forth and conquer, really, to deal with some of these things, because, you know, obviously cyber war would be the responsibility of the Department of Defense. But mm -hmm. the current climate, mm -hmm. you know, with the targeting of private sector companies. SolarWinds, for example, obviously there was a governmental targeting there, but plenty of sure. private sector companies that were hit as well that wouldn't fall under the necessarily protection of the DOD. Does the current climate need a change in approach as far as how to deal with cyber war in the sense of, you know, DOD is right. going to need some help with some things and it, yeah. it is, is creating that private public <laughs> sector um, association somewhere that this might go to? Yeah. 
So funny, we can, we, let's, yeah, let, let's defer the DOD um, public private sector question for a little bit, because there, there's a little bit, there's some, there's some testimony from General Nakasone, I think that's, that's interesting there. But to your point about the current climate of cyber operations now, right? And I mean, I don't know if it feels like this to you, but to me, it, I mean, it feels increasingly damaging and chaotic, right? Right. From Russian, like the disinformation campaigns sure. to supply chain compromises, like solar winds, like to the to the massive like informational compromises that are ongoing right because of right. the chinese attack on windows exchange servers mm-hmm. um and again to the latest you know potentially rather dangerous skirmish between iran and israel right yep. mm, sure. <laughs> like the landscape feels as bad as it has ever been but our change in approach actually happened in 2018 and 2019 and we've actually we've actually done some serious things and gotten some real results um so Along with the along with the NDAA, when you look at DOD's 2018 cyber strategy, there and, and again, and I highly recommend anyone anyone who listens to your podcast and is a policy nerd <laughs> to go to go to go read DOD's, DOD's 2015 cyber strategy and the 2018 cyber strategy, um, or at least the executive summaries, because DOG, DOD has absolutely taken on the responsibility for these types of gray space attacks, right? And by gray space, I mean cyber attacks that sort of they fall in between the military's traditional notions of, you know, offensive and defensive actions. Right. Right. And and it, it's worth looking at the evolution of our military cyber strategy to see where to see why where we sit now is so absolutely mind bending. Right. So, as you know, you know, cyber cyber command was stood up in 2010 and 2011 DOD came out with its first cyber strategy. And when it was published, it focused on intrusion prevention at the perimeter and defeating adversary activities on DOD networks and systems. I mean, that is super narrow, right? Mm-hmm. It was it, it was essentially just the DOD saying, "Hey, we're going to defend ourselves," <laughs> you know, in this in this in this cybery in this cybery realm. Right. Um, I mean, it did it did include the concept of equivalence, right? That, that we just talked about, which says that an attack on our digital systems that does as much damage as a traditional physical attack could actually prompt a military response, right? Um, I mean, I mean, the military actually said. You know, but all they said was the Pentagon said, you know, if the computer sabotage is bad enough, then we're going to respond using traditional military force. Right. But again, it's still very narrow, right? That's not a very creative way to deal with some of this stuff. It's like, if it feels like war, we're going to treat it like war. Right. I'm sure there's parts of that that kind of delineate out if this, then that. (laughs) Yeah. But it's very, very narrow, right? And it's still, and, and the Pentagon is still steeped in its own sort of, it's its own little narrow, like this, this is my lane, right? Mm-hmm. As the American military. And the, even, oh, even 2015, the DOD cyber strategy, the focus was still a very military mindset, right? The three priorities were the defense of DOD networks, the defense of the U.S. and its interests, and cyber capabilities to support military operations. That's it. That's all there was. <laughs> so. Well. <laughs> Yeah, it it leads it leads room for modification. So there's that. Well, fast forward three, well, very short but very chaotic years. Yes, well, true, true, 2018. Yes. yes, but we're not going to talk politics here. But can I around yes? Uh, no, no. It, it's, <laughs> but regard, but I, I mean, at some point you sort of have to because some of yeah, these yeah. attacks sure, right, sure, were, sure, sure. were yes. political. Right, right. But right. anyway, but the 2018 DOD cyber strategy is an amazing document. It it exhibits a thorough understanding of the reality of the cyber operations we're facing, not just from a military perspective, right? But from a national security perspective. And it and it and it takes absolute responsibility for addressing them. So let me read you two sentences and then we'll, we'll break them down a little bit because it's fascinating. 
So this is what the strategy says. We will conduct cyberspace operations to collect intelligence and prepare military cyber capabilities to be used in the event of crisis or conflict. We will defend forward to disrupt or halt malicious cyber activity at its source, including activity that falls below the level of armed conflict. Oh, right? that's a good one. So, oh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, if you think of it, they're literally giving themselves the responsibility for everything and the authority to do anything about it. Right. I mean, in, you yeah. know, it, short terms but it does but it, this language echoes and adds detail right to the language in the in the national defense authorization act so when they say when they say prepare military cyber capabilities this goes back to one of our earlier points like this includes persistent and ongoing system compromise right this is this is this is called hold at risk right it, with, it makes clear to the adversary that you're capable of defeating their security and causing harm to something important right whether it's their electrical grid <laughs> their government functions right so the 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 interesting thing about a hold at risk strategy is that you like there can be a deterrent effect on the adversary of them knowing that you are in your their system and they are persistently compromised but it also opens up the possibility that they can then focus on denying you access <laughs> right <laughs> right and yeah. finding you in their in their system mm -hmm. um but the problem with this like, like we talked about the problem with persistent system compromises is they can potentially be used for anything, right? Espionage, sure. theft, alteration, destruction of data, preparing the battlefield for war, or this hold at risk, right? Yeah. Uh, contingency. And so the victim's assumptions about the attacker's intent will most likely dictate their response. Like you can see how that could go off the rails very quickly. <laughs> right, right, right. And also how hard it would be to shape the desired political outcome, right? Or effectiveness of such a, such a compromise. But... DOJ is giving I mean, DOJ DOD is giving themselves right the ability to do all of these things. Um, the other really interesting thing that a lot of people have been debating and, and writing about is is the notion of defend forward. I mean, when I heard that first, it just made me laugh because to me that just that's just a euphemism for offensive operations. Yeah, sure, right, right. But but honestly, they they define it as confronting threats before they reach U.S. networks. And when you really think about it. It, it's completely logical and also way more legally palatable than having our military fight across our domestic digital infrastructure. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a very elegant sidestep <laughs> from sure. DOD. Right. So they're saying they're saying we're we are taking the fight to its source. Right. Right. Yep. And that's but but again, that's huge. Right. So so DOD is actually saying, we understand the weird gray space in the middle here that we're dealing with, right? Economic espionage, political disinformation, information warfare, espionage operations, state-sponsored money-raising regimes, right? Mm -hmm. Ransomware, malware, yep. and the hybrids of all of these things. And DOD is saying, we are taking it all on. Well, that's good. And we are and, taking the fight to our to our adversaries. Right, and that's good. And hopefully, and I, what we can assume, I mean, both of us being involved in government for years is that those things are probably going on. We're just never going to hear about it because it's not going to be reported because it stands at a classification that won't be published, which is, which is a good thing. Well, no. Okay. Garrett, not necessarily. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> because, because remember, right. Deterrence, deterrence does yes. depend on people knowing yes, what you're yes, doing. Right? Correct. Yes. But, I agree. But, but, but so here's, but here's the other thing too, right? Like this, this is, this is going to cause a, a big, a legal thicket for us, right? Because as you know, like cyber attackers distribute their infrastructure all over the world, mm -hmm. right? To preserve their anonymity and increase ambiguity, right? Yep. I mean, this includes countries we're allies with or hostile to, right? Sure. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and when and when cyber command, when DOD says we are bringing the fight to the origin of the problem. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be fighting in the in the digital digital sovereign space of our adversaries. Yep. We're going to be fighting in the digital sovereign space of wherever this problem right. sits. The tool space more. It's more like the tool space versus the actual space. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So could be our allies, could be our right, but mm-hmm. but it triggers all kinds of interesting questions, right? About di- digital sovereignty and like nations' rights to self-defense in cyberspace. But but here's the thing, Darren. I mean, to me, this this is a beautifully crafted piece of policy, and we will sort of deal with the practical implications as they come up. Yeah, and right. right. So we we are actually exactly where we need to be, probably in terms of a change in approach to cyber operations. We have accurately defined the problem. We've shown the political will to do something about it. We've given DoD the full ability and authority to respond to attacks on U.S interests and they've actually used it in some cases like i didn't realize i don't know if this was lost in the in the news cycle but during the 2018 midterm elections i mean cyber command attacked an internet research agency troll farm in st petersburg and destroyed their servers excellent right yeah gone um they also created something called the russia small group right which is a cybercom nsa team that was working to protect the midterms and this is this is what General Nakasone said in his testimony to Congress. You can just extrapolate what this means. <laughs> he said, we created a persistent presence in cyberspace to monitor adversary actions and crafted tools and tactics to frustrate their efforts. Yeah. So that 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 tells me we were pretty deep right into into Russia, whatever systems we needed to be in. And we actually even sent defensive cyber teams to Europe to conduct cyber operations from there. Hmm. Well, it's funny. I mean, because, we, you know, it's funny. It's funny you make you make those notes, and that, that it's that's again fantastic research, as as I would come to expect. But I, a lot of the time, I post <laughs> stuff. I post stuff on LinkedIn regarding cyber war and stuff like this. And people say, "Well, I hope we're doing the same mm-hmm. thing to them." And it's funny. It's mm-hmm. obvious yeah. we are. You're you're obviously making the point that yes, we are. So for those who've asked that yeah. question on LinkedIn, yeah. we are doing it. But we you, you, you the. And maybe it's just not sexy <laughs> they, enough they, they, because they no, do enjoy reading congressional testimony. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, part of it, it's a, it's a, it's a, if it bleeds, it leads thing. No one's bleeding from any of this from a, from an actual right. human body right. part, but it's having a great deter, de, deterrent effect or not even deterrent, but a great, um, you know, offensive effort to take this stuff offline. So I, I think there was yeah. a, there used to be a DOJ attorney that used to make this note in, in, meetings about launching metal at things. So we're kind of launching digital metal at some of these things and taking them off. And so great. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, so here's the thing though. I, but I understand, right? Like, like election interference is a certain thing at a certain point in time. Yeah. And, it, and to me that, that seems to be easier than dealing with something like solar winds. Right. Sure, right. Yes. But the fact that we're doing that, and I will say, and maybe um, like not even, not even a year after that, right. In June of 2019, the New York times reported that cybercom had penetrated um, completely into the Russian electric utilities, mm-hmm. right? Planning malware, you know, capable of disrupting their grid and, you know, maybe as a retaliatory measure to further deter, right? Cyber attacks on us. But here's the thing, right? Deter- deterrence doesn't matter if nobody knows it's happening. <laughs> right, right. So, so the fact that this came out in the New York Times is, is really interesting. However, right, you, you can't necessarily control what, right, what happens. Um, I mean, the, the Kremlin immediately sort of doubled down and said that, you know, this isn't true. But if it is true, <laughs> these, these intrusions could escalate into a cyber war. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think that's the thing. I think, right? right. I think, I mean, and that's the point. I think maybe the, the general public doesn't hear about these things, but the the nation right. state actors know. They know who did it. I mean, right. it's not like Russia is yeah. not going to turn around and blame China for doing any of this. 
or vice versa. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's true. And like I said, in, in some of the things, right, our right, our political goals sometimes depend on people knowing that we're there. Yes, right. Which is right. which is why I think a little bit of this has been has been more and more public. But um, this still like to me, like we still face what I think Robert Gates called the least asked question in Washington, which is and then what? Yeah. Right. Yep. Like mm-hmm. like like we're staring down the barrel of some devastating cyber attacks. Right. Like solar winds, the Microsoft Exchange servers. I mean, both attacks have probably caused grave damage to U.S. national and economic security. Right. Sure. And I, and I mean that in the legal federal definition of grave damage. Um, but but then so so what is an appropriate, proportional and more importantly, like effective response to these cyber attacks? Yep. Right. Like, like what kind of response actually actually works like what kind of response furthers our political goals like I, I i legitimately don't know what kind of pain we could inflict and how that would make these kinds of attacks not worth it right right because the i mean the the data i mean how how would these attacks ever be not worth it right well let's go i'm gonna go back a little bit this is a question that i didn't send you prior to this but i just kind of thought mm-hmm. about it let's go to the opm the opm breach we all know china yeah. did it and absolutely and so I mean, what are the repercussions of that? They now know everybody prior to 2015 who worked for the for the mm-hmm. federal government. This is maybe not as big an issue for those of us who stay domestic and don't travel to China. But if you work in the intelligence community as an you know undercover operative under a specific name or whatever, and you travel to one of these areas of the world that puts your life at risk, that the right. the information gathered from that intrusion puts you yep. at a personal risk. So I you know you could go all the way back and. If you wanted to say, hey, here's we're going to do a, a response to this yeah. attack. And you're and you're and you're exactly right. And I guess I guess that's the thing. That's the part of this that breaks my brain, because I, I don't understand what would be appropriate. Like retaliation might feel good, yeah. but it doesn't solve the problem. Like right. you said, right, of the permanent and ongoing damage of of a of another nation state having that kind of information. Right. Yep. About federal employees and people mm-hmm. who carry who carry a clearance, I guess. And that's the same thing. Right. Like I thought. Right. I mean, I thought Cyber Command's response to right the 2018 midterm election interference was brilliant. It was appropriate and it was a proportional and it was effective. Yes. I don't know what that would be when you when it comes to something right. like the opium act or right. even or even the north korea attack on sony <laughs> right? Yeah, right or yeah or, or solar winds or the microsoft exchange Service. or want to cry for that matter or want to cry yeah. right exactly not pet yet like any any of that right uh, like the ransomware campaigns um all all of it right and i guess i guess that's the thing we've given ourselves the full responsibility and authority and we certainly have the capability right to, mm-hmm. to respond uh, I mean, as you know, I, I spent some time at Cyber Command, and I was very, I was very impressed. Right? I was, I was very impressed with our, with our capabilities and our, and our abilities. But, but even so, right? We have all of these tools at our disposal. But what is it that we can do that's actually going to be effective? Right. So, do we bring the private sector in this in any way, shape, or form? Because obviously, some. I mean, if you're a private sector company, you get hit. You may not even report it, but you may get really ticked off and want to do an appropriate response, like the DOD can do. Um, you know. Where do you where do you stand on that? Is that a good idea, bad idea? I mean, that, that creates a whole host of other policy issues, obviously. But you probably and probably it's not best to start a war with Russia or China because Boeing decided they were going to go hack into Air China and do some damage. Right. Well, well, here's the thing. I don't. I I, I absolutely don't agree with bringing on the um, 
right, the private sector as, you know, <laughs> like proxy civilian warfighters. Sure. Yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, these, I mean, they've, they, they've proven, they've proven resistant to any sort of, to any sort of federal oversight at all. Right. In their, in their industries, like, you know, because, but here's the thing, but you can't do anything without them. Right. Like neither DOD nor the U S government can currently fulfill their obligations, right. To protect American citizens without the buy-in and joint efforts of the private sector. Right. I mean, they're in it already, whether they want to be or not. Right. I mean, our critical infrastructure sectors are privately owned, right. Our power grids, our financial institutions, and they're targets for nation state activity. Right. Yep. Look at, look at Iran's attacks on our, on our banks in 2012. Um, but I will say like just this past Monday, oh, these things infuriate me, um, like April 12th, <laughs> like the information communications technology sector sent a letter to the secretaries of DHS and commerce, essentially complaining about executive order 13873, which was the EEO um, issued in May 2019 to secure the telecom industry and supply chain by prohibiting Huawei and ZTE components. Right. You remember right. that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and requesting that this administration, that the Biden administration, defer to industry-led technical standards and best practices to address cybersecurity, supply chain, and other global challenges, which has been a dismal failure up to this point. <laughs> we could we could all agree. Like they actually reference the so the Solar Winds compromise in the letter, and then go on to call for voluntary standards and incentives for companies to innovate and adopt security technologies. They actually say in the letter that the federal government should not attempt to create its own technical demands or usurp private standards bodies. I just what? <laughs> like my my opinion from being a federal employee for my entire career is you know the past twenty years of asking nicely for the private sector to do better has not worked. Right. Right. Yes. I mean, one of one of the things that General Nakasone said in his testimony. Uh, to Congress was like, it is a priority for Cybercom to expand its ability, right, to collaborate effectively with other government agencies, the private sector, academia, and allies. We must do this because they directly and indirectly complement and enhance our war fighting capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the private sector doesn't want the government telling them what to do at all, right, which is an unacceptable position to take when you realize that they're in action. And their and you know and their desire for voluntary standards and best practices and incentives um, directly affects and and degrades our national security and our warfighting capabilities. Well, not only that, when Solar Winds came out, what was that the first unacceptable. when Solar Winds came out? What was the first thing the private sector said? Well, you guys should have had better plans in place to protect the supply chain. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That that also drives me nuts too. Right? Is ever everyone's everyone's talking about? You know, the U.S. needs to do better at civilian, like domestic digital defense, like 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 it's like like it's the size of a football field, right? That needs yeah. a, that needs a, right, a bubble yes. put over it. Right? It's, it's How hard can it be? Big. It must be easy. Uh, but I mean, like. One of the reasons that the U.S. dollar is the world's preeminent currency is that our financial compliance laws are not voluntary, right? right? Yes. I mean, we need to take an active regulatory role. I mean, here's the thing. I agree with the private sector that we we probably need to figure out a way for our laws and regulations to be more nimble and evolve a little yes. bit quicker, mm-hmm. right? Like, like I, I definitely agree with that, but but they need to be there. Well, right? the problem so is we they need to be created – right, but they need to be created and enforced or – you know, because let's take CMMC. So I'm dealing a lot with CMMC. How about now. created? I would just take created. <laughs> yeah, we're right. And created and then said, here's what we're going to do. Go forth and do it. CMMC has been talked about now for going on two years. Um, mm-hmm. It's already behind schedule. Chances are every company that goes through an assessment to get certified under CMMC is going to fail initially because there is no possible yeah. way they can successfully manage 
to pass 130 of the practices under yeah. CMMC. I've already seen this myself that, you know, some of the companies we're doing these pre-assessments for are getting 40, yeah. 50% compliance. So I can already foresee sure. where the the CM, the DOD is going to say, well, I'll tell you what, you know, if you can get at least get to 30% and you can do POAMs for the other 70 and POAMs are planned actions mm-hmm. that, you know, we're going to mitigate that problem mm-hmm. in the future, yeah. then yeah. That's going to, that's going to, that makes CMMC at that point worthless, which is where PCI and HIPAA are a little better because they have enforcement behind them. You can't really say, ah, we'll get around to it. Give us some time. Yes. But, but if you think about it too, like like HIPAA also is, is sort of data protection. Yes, correct. That's, that gives it, right. Mm -hmm. That gives the, the regulation its own sort of elasticity. Yeah. Right. That like, they're not saying you must use a firewall. You must do this. Right. They're, they're not they're not they're not sort of codifying the technology. They're just saying this. You you need to protect data to the standard. Um, but but you're right. I mean, there, there's all kinds of I mean, there are ISO cybersecurity standards. There are NIST cybersecurity standards. Right. There, there's no there are no lack. Right. The cybersecurity maturity model certification that you talk about. There's sure. no there, there's no there's no lack of roadmaps. There's no there's no lack of data <laughs> right. for the for the private sector to pick up and be better. But but honestly, right? It, it comes down to a to a cost issue, right? If yes. if implementing cybersecurity drives up the cost of doing business, and their competitors aren't doing it, then no one's going to. That's exactly right. right? Unless 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 the government sort of gives them a baseline and says, "Look, this is you you need to do this." So and, yeah. again, and our national security and war fighting capabilities are completely intertwined with what the with with what the private sector does or does not do. Right. Right. So, like I said, I, I feel like it's it's time to stop asking and time to start telling. But, no, you, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, you know, CISA does a great job of releasing suggestions. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, they, well, I was gonna say, well, they, they do a really good job too because they, they actually they actually put out bulletins that are technical mitigations. Right. Exactly. That's what right. I'm saying. That yes. IT staff can use, and it just yeah, but it's but but to be fair, right. I mean, they put them out and, and they could require that the federal government does it too. And even our agencies don't get them done all the time. <laughs> well, you know, my, I think my fear is if we get to an actual bullets flying, Lauren, that's going to find Lauren, that's going to get me to my, my final question for you mm-hmm. here is mm-hmm. that the cyber war that comes with it, they're going to exploit simple vulnerabilities that have been around for a long time that no one took the time to mitigate. And that's where the private sector is going to fail us is, you know, they knew these things were bad, but they had that, well, I'm not going to be a victim. I don't have anything anyone would want mentality. So do you think, so this is kind of a two part question now. Do you think that, you know, will cyber war, the current cyber war activity lead to a more traditional bullets flying war? And if so, let's say that, you know, the whole, there was news this week about Russia telling the U S Hey, you know, (laughs) kind of saying we're going to go invade Ukraine. So step back because I don't want to touch us yet, but so (laughs) is that going to happen? Then if so, are we prepared to deal with it? I'm going to say the answer. Probably your final. The answer to part two is probably no, but I'll I'll, I'll lead you with that. Yeah. Well, so far, like you said, the I, I mean, I mean, so far in these, you know, cyber war activity leading to more traditional bullets flying war. Um, so far, to your initial point, the private sector has sort of been collateral damage, right? When you when you look at going back and forth with um, Stuxnet and Olympic Games, right? Yes. When when mm-hmm. the U.S. and Israel, you know, sort of released Stuxnet, well, you know. The Iranians <laughs> took Stuxnet and 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 flipped it back at us, right? In yes. in um, right, they they took some of the code and, and created what Shamoon, I think. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, exactly. And just completely <laughs> laid out the Ramco, um, and also right the DDoS attacks on our our banks type thing. But but that was sort of collateral damage. Oh, and and Stuxnet got loose, right? And also hit Chevron yep. and did some did some serious damage. Um, but so far, it has stayed in the in the sort of 
political and warfare realm. And I say that like it, it's been it, we've seen both over the last few years, right? Cyber attacks have prompted kinetic attacks and kinetic attacks have prompted cyber attacks. Like I want to say in May 2019, if you remember that, that was the first instance of kinetic military action used in response to a cyber attack, right? That resulted in the loss of human life. So that was the, the Israeli Defense Forces targeted and destroyed a building um, associated with Hamas uh, hackers. Okay. I remember, remember that they were they were they were in the middle of a conflict and Hamas was was executing a cyber attack. Okay. So Israel, Israel bombed the building and, and killed the hackers, right? I mean, this was in the, midst, in the midst of an ongoing physical attack, but it marks the first time that immediate military force was used to stop a cyber attack. However, right, there, there's, been some, there's been some international criticism about this because Israel later admitted that they had stopped the cyber attack, right, before bombing the building yep. that the Hamas hackers were in and the servers. So... The international community is saying, you know, in terms of armed conflict, this response was probably excessive in its proportionality hey, and, it, and its appropriateness. It right? They, they had already digitally eliminated the threat. But but again, when you look at the, the view of the victim, right, it's just as easy for the, the for the Hamas to start the cyber attack again. Right. Well, you so see, they, they permanently took care of the problem. Right. In law enforcement, we call that the penalty phase. <laughs> Sorry. Bad, bad, oh, bad attempt at a joke there, sorry. <laughs> but, yes. but, but you know what I mean? But it actually caused, so that was, you know, that was, that was permanent damage based on a cyber attack. Um, but in the other hand, right, like, the, like I mean, the U.S., like we launched a cyber attack in June of 2019, right, against um, Iranian weapons systems in retaliation for them shooting down our drone in the Strait of Hormuz, right, if you remember that. Like, yep. plus they were, they were attacking some of our oil tankers, right? Like our cyber attack disabled their command and control systems for rocket and missile launchers. So yeah, you know, so Iran sort of started a little kinetic conflict, and we ended it with a cyber, right? With a with a cyber attack, right? To disable their their weapon systems, right? So it kind of it kind of goes both ways, um, but for us, I don't. It, when you talk about China and Russia, right? That's that's a little bit more difficult, right? Especially the Ukraine. Like if you remember, I mean, President Biden just spoke to. Um, Vladimir Putin this week, right? Yep, and reiterated our support for the Ukraine. Um, but I mean, it certainly hasn't stopped the hybrid, you know, <laughs> no, that's cyber sure. kinetic armed conflicts. Um, I mean, it's a problem for us in NATO security interests, right? But but again, back to some of our early discussion, I don't think anyone has a good idea about how to curb Russia's behavior. I mean, because again, the Ukraine is a serious security issue for Russia as well. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. this this matters to them. I mean, the Ukraine probably matters to Russia more than it matters to NATO. Right. I mean, they didn't. They, but they didn't deploy I mean, Article five during the threat. Right. They didn't deploy Article five during the first Ukrainian conflict. So why would they do it now? <laughs> exactly. Right. And we. Uh, yeah. And same thing. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you remember um, Estonia, you know, requested help under Article right. five mm -hmm. yep. sure. <laughs> during right during the 2007 attacks. And they're like. Uh, right, that just had to do with the statue. Willing, but nobody knew what to do. Right, that only had to do with the statue. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. And I mean, mm. I mean, China, China's the same way, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, we like. I mean, the South China Sea is strategically important, right? <laughs> obviously to China, but obviously to the U.S. It carries like one third of the world's maritime trade, um, and cyber warfare between us and China, like, could escalate to an incredibly damaging level. Um, like to attack and defend, you know, sort of strategic flashpoints in the Pacific, but, and it might still end up in traditional warfare. 
Who knows, right? The, the problem, the problem with Russia and the Ukraine, in the U.S. and China and the South China Sea in the U.S. in the in the U.S. is ultimately those little power tensions are physical. They're physical areas. Right. Yep. Right. Like you can't. Yep. You can't. You you can't fix you can't resolve that <laughs> with a uh, cyber warfare. Right, right. The South China, the problem with the know. South China Sea are not going to be resolved over hacking somebody's power right. grid. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I I don't know that that's going to get anyone to change their behavior there, right? Because those are like these are those are geographical <laughs> places of of importance for both of us. Exactly. Well, Donna, it's been a pleasure as always. I greatly appreciate your research coming on for this. Um, I will come up with another topic down the road, and we'll have you on again. Make this a regular feature. We, we can call it, we can call it we call it uh, policy review and learning with Donna Peters. I, <laughs> I, I don't know, but it, the education hour, right? the education like, hour. How about that? <laughs> well, again, like I said, thank you, thank, thank you very much for for having me too, and it was a good chance to actually uh, review right where where we are right. as a as a country in our cyber warfare capabilities, sure. which was actually quite heartening. Right, because so, I, I, that's something that people really aren't talking a whole lot about, at least that I can find. So that's it's good. Hopefully, some uh, some yeah. folks will listen and, and and pass along to their friends. Where's your next trip? Yeah. Well, what's the next uh, What's the next tour of the United States going to lead you to? Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm heading to New Orleans for a week, and then uh, South Carolina a couple weeks after that. All right, so, when you coming to Alabama? Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> I I don't know. When when do you have good weather? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you just passed like a little bit. Like there's a week in March and a week in September, I think. But otherwise, it's it's really <laughs> hot or it's just kind of dreary a little bit. It's not too bad. I mean, it's it's uh you'd like you'd like Huntsville. It's like it's like Northern Virginia. But instead of having seven targets, yeah. there's only two. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I will make it down there for a visit. Will you come see the um, new FBI but facility? Again, but, but not, but not until September. Not until I can tolerate the humidity. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I understand. All right, Don. I appreciate it. Enjoy your your next trip and stay yeah. safe. All right. You too. Nice. <laughs> Thanks again, Darren. That's a wrap for episode 33 of the Cyber Guy podcast. If you have any questions for me for future podcasts or any questions about the FBI or anything cybersecurity related, feel free to email me at darren at thecyberguy.com, cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. I've also posted a link to the 2018 DOD cyber strategy that Donna mentioned in the podcast uh, in on the information page of the podcast. So if you want to read a quick summary of that, it's there for you. As you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats that are targeting you, assess your risk, proceed wisely, because knowledge is protection. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week.